Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today I will be looking back at the 2019 summer movie season. We kind of wanted to dig into sort of the hits and the misses and, and what kind of summer it's been. And then we will move into the latest edition of Reader Hot Takes, where you review this show on iTunes, leave us your hottest film-related take, and we will discuss it on air. And then we will also uh, have an installment of Recently Watched, where we talk about the films we've seen lately. Uh, I saw a humdinger this past week. It's a big podcast this week. It's a big big podcast. Yeah, a lot to cover. So let's just dive into the summer movie season. Rather than going like week by week, like we've done in the past, where it's like, this is what opened this weekend, and this is what opened that weekend. I kind of, we kind of wanted to discuss in in the, the season in broader terms, because in some ways, it's been a major disappointment. Like, I would say this has been kind of a lousy summer, except there have been a lot of good movies, but they're smaller films that no one saw. And so it feels like either you had big films that were really successful, but they weren't particularly great or they underperformed or you had like smaller films like Booksmart um, that people liked, but not enough people went to go see them. And it's sort of, I don't know. On the one hand, if you're Disney and you released like a bunch of billion dollar grossing films, you're probably thrilled. If you're every other studio, I would be a little freaking worried right about now. Um, Because this was, you know, summer is your tentpole season. You you know, you're you're really banking on films like Men in Black International uh, to succeed. And when they're tanking, you're in a bad place. Yeah. uh, Anything not Disney, if you made a blockbuster this year, it, it... This summer, even um, I can't even really count Spider-Man: Far From Home, even as a, even though it's a Sony film, it was pretty much made by Disney because Marvel Studios had all the creative control. Yeah, the only difference there is that Sony ran the marketing, but it doesn't really take a Disney marketing machine to sell a Marvel movie nowadays. Right? Um, like it helps. I think those dis that Disney marketing machine knows exactly how to get a movie up to a billion, which is what they've been really good at. But just to make a movie successful, you don't need. Disney, you just got to slap the Marvel logo on it. And, you know, Spider-Man Far From Home did cross a billion. Yeah. And I think it's the first Spider-Man movie to cross a billion since the Raimi trilogy. No, there, it was, see? no, none of those. Cro- it was the, it's the first, it's the first, it's the first, the only other Sony movie that's ever crossed a billion was Skyfall. Interesting. Okay. Well, in Spider-Man Homecoming, it grossed more than the amazing Spider-Man movies. Um, but it wasn't like it made $880 million worldwide. Uh, and I kind of did a deep dive in it in this week's how the MCU got made or last week's, uh, I guess, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, this week, we're recording it a little bit early. Um, but, uh, so, like, the Spider-Man franchise had been in freefall a little bit ever since each successive movie had made less than the one before it after Spider-Man 3, um, I think, uh, something like that worldwide. Um, so, like, you know, Spider-Man Homecoming did all right, but $880 million versus, I think, Amazing Spider-Man um, crossed $750 million, I think, somewhere around there. Um, yeah, $757 million. So it wasn't like Spider-Man Homecoming was... Uh, monumentally more successful at the box office than the Amazing Spider-Man movies, but that creative goodwill obviously carried over. So you see that in Far From Home um, because I think some people sat out Spider-Man Homecoming not necessarily knowing, if you think of general audiences, they didn't necessarily know, you know, is this just another reboot of Spider-Man? You know, I don't really want to see another Spider-Man movie. (laughs) And it took that word of mouth from uh, people who had seen it to kind of get people to actually watch it. I think a lot of people probably found it on home video or on cable, stuff like that. And it doesn't hurt that Spider-Man was in the Avengers movies. And so that's how you get from 880 million worldwide in Spider-Man Homecoming to over a billion dollars for Spider-Man Far From Home. Even though Spider-Man Far From Home is not near as good as Spider-Man Homecoming. It is not. But I think also sort of, you know, coming as the off the tailwind of Endgame and people just wanting just a little bit more Marvel and knowing like this is, you know, I just need, I just only have to wait a few more months and I get a little bit more Marvel and I get to see how the story continues. People are like, yeah, I will, you know, Endgame makes $2 billion worldwide. You Spider-Man, it's probably not that surprising that Far From Home makes at least a billion worldwide. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
so that movie, I mean, that was a success, but then that has to go hand in hand with Men in Black International, which was an absolute bomb for Sony. Um, it made $79 million domestic, which is bad. Uh, and worldwide, $252 million, which you think, and I think this is a lesson for, um, I, I think it's a lesson for studios, and I think it, it goes to, and I think we talked about it, a little bit about this when we did our podcast on it, the notion that movie stars don't sell movies anymore. So if if the idea was that people liked Chris Hemsworth in the Avengers movies, then, you know, in the heart of the sea or rush should have been a little bit more successful. But I think the, the proof positive here is that if people liked Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson in Thor Ragnarok and in Avengers Endgame, um, you know, if it was those actors that was drawing them to it, uh, I think Ben and Black international would have been more, um, popular or more successful, but, I think this just goes to show that people are showing up for characters and franchises and no longer ex- necessarily like actors. Like you can say, Oh, I enjoy Chris Hemsworth, but people aren't really showing up to his other movies. I mean, I would say like Dwayne Johnson is arguably like the biggest movie star in the world. And he still yeah. has flops. Like no one went to go see fucking skyscraper. No. And didn't he have, he had something else that didn't do great. Uh, rampage. Yeah. Rampage did so, so I think. Yeah. Um, and like, the thing is, is like, that's not to say like Dwayne Johnson, like can't, isn't an important part of your movie, but he can't be the only part of your movie. Like there actually does need to be some sort of word of mouth. Like the film itself has to be kind of good. It's not just like, I'll see Dwayne Johnson in anything. Um, He's not like, it's good to have him, but he's not like, you know, last year he like, or maybe it was two years before there was also Baywatch, which flopped. Yeah. You know, and he was really back in Baywatch. And like, he was real mad that people didn't like Baywatch. He, he was not thrilled about that. <laughs> it was our fault Baywatch was bad. <laughs> yeah. The critics soured it for the people. Ah, why did we do that? <laughs> I, I got to let you listeners in on a little secret, secret. Baywatch is actually good, but all the critics got together to trash it so you <laughs> wouldn't get to see it. <laughs> nefarious plan. It's a nefarious plan to see Baywatch for some fucking reason. Um, yeah. And so I would say like, yes, obviously I think IP is everything to studios. Um, I think sometimes to its detriment, uh, which I think you can see with men in black, which is they thought the men in black IP was valuable enough to be like, well, if you take the, the star power of Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth and you combine it with, you know, we've had some hit men in black films, surely this will pan out. And it didn't. And I would say, like, honestly, Sony's not really, like, I want to say they're not paying attention, but they've done this thing now where they have these movies, they have this IP, and they spend way too much fucking money on it, and they just assume it's going to work. Like, they did, this happened, like, the the all-female Ghostbusters wasn't a flop, but it wasn't a hit because it cost too much fucking money. Yeah, it was way too expensive. It was way too expensive. Like they needed to like someone needed to come in and be like, hey, we love this cast. We will back this cast. These are funny women, but we doesn't need this movie doesn't need to be a VFX extravaganza. We can do we can have a good film without, you know, a third act that's pretty much all CG. Yeah. Um, And they didn't do that. And I think that's that that speaks to poor leadership at Sony and and not that Sony's the only one doing that. Star Trek Beyond. I think is a solid film, a uh, good cast, good script. But again, it doesn't succeed not because it's an outright flop, but because Paramount paid too much fucking money for it. And so you have these studios that are like, if we just throw money at IP and we get some bankable names, everything will work out. And like, I guess that's defensible to your shareholders, but that bill is going to come due. And the bill is no one is coming to see your fucking movie. Yeah, another surprising example of that this year was Godzilla King of the Monsters, Mm -hmm. which maybe shouldn't have been so surprising. Um, That movie cost $170 million to make, and it only grossed $385 million worldwide, which is not good when you consider that Kong and the other Godzilla both crossed $500 million worldwide. And that they have Kongzilla versus Kong like in production right now. Yeah, yeah, they can't scrap it. So it's a bit of a Batman v Superman Justice League situation, although without the... um, uh, I mean, Batman v Superman wasn't as big of a financial disappointment. It was more the critical, like, tone of like, oh, people don't like the way that this is going. We should change. I would this. say it would still it was still a box office. It didn't cross one billion. 
No, but it wasn't like – I would say 385 million worldwide for Godzilla King of the Monsters is kind of disastrous. Oh, that is disastrous. No, no, that's disastrous. That being said, I would think that hopefully the lesson they took from Batman v Superman is don't completely try to scrap things midstream. Like just yeah. write it to the end of the line because you can't save it. No. You can't salvage it midway. Well, and they already, in the wake of Godzilla King of the Monsters being released, they pushed the release date of Godzilla vs. Kong back, uh, which tells me they're doing some rejiggering. So uh, I wouldn't be shocked to find out if if I were Adam Weingard. I wouldn't be shocked to find out that Adam Weingard was told on set, hey, we're canceling this giant set piece that you had planned. and We're cutting this from the budget um, while he was making that movie, given the uh, um, the financial performance of Godzilla King of the Monsters. Right. Um, so, but that was kind of surprising to me because the budget of King of the Monsters was pretty much on par with the first Godzilla and Kong Skull Island. No, I mean, it, uh, that at least strikes me as a reasonable investment. Yeah. Um, it was just, you know, audiences aren't into monster movies. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily. I don't even know if it's not necessarily that audiences like aren't into monster movies, but like, again, like the film itself wasn't that good. Like, I mean, no. what, what was its Ron Tomato score? Let's look that up. Battle. Well, and it was billed as this big epic battle between monsters, but it came out a month after Avengers Endgame, which mm-hmm. is all epic, like the most epic thing. And I think Avengers Endgame is kind of the unspoken thing here is that it was it was going to be hard for anything to surmount uh, the pop culture gulf that or pop culture black hole that Avengers Endgame would create. Um, you knew that that movie would take hold and command uh, the pop cultural conversation for at least a month after it came out um but then disney kicks in you know the home video marketing campaign and people are excited for it to come out on digital and you've got marvel heading to uh san diego comic-con in july so that's just a couple months later so that conversation just keeps going and that's all that's all in marvel's plan like that's They're marching towards a potential Oscar run for that movie, uh, absolutely. And in order to do that, you have to keep the film in the in the minds of people, of uh, voters, and people who are doing that sort of thing. Um, but I think just any kind of epic blockbuster was gonna have trouble. I think that's true. Although I also think that Endgame was kind of ephemeral. In like it, it, it was sort of like it exploded in May. Yeah, but it really did have to limp over the finish line of becoming the highest, the most successful film worldwide at the box office. And I think part of that is, you know, when you compare it to Avatar, Avatar opened in December. Avatar had no competition for months. Whereas, you know, Endgame had to take on, you know, Detective Pikachu and and John Wick and Aladdin and, you know, like other things. There were, there's more, there's more movies to see rather than let's just go back and see, you know, Endgame again. But that being said, I would also say just like the way the, the speed of the cultural conversation, like Endgame was present. And I think Marvel and Disney did a good job of trying to keep it in the conversation. But also like it, I think it's harder for a film like that to to stick around when we're all like, you know, our attention spans are so short and we're already like moving on to the next thing. Yeah, I think that just speaks to the way that people consume culture now. I yeah. mean, Stranger, Stranger Things is still one of Netflix's most valuable properties, and yet you cannot make that conversation conversation last longer than two weeks. If that. Uh, if that. Yeah, well, and my fiancé was complaining about it because she said, you know, like she and I binged it that whole weekend so I could be on top of it for work and because we enjoy the show. Um, and then people at her work, like – two months later watched it and so like she had watched it and no one else at work like some people had watched a couple episodes some people hadn't started yet so she had no one to talk to about it and that's kind of just made the conversation die and then you know two months later someone might say oh i finally watched it and i enjoyed it and it's like oh yeah i watched it in a whole weekend so i don't really remember like specific episodes but i also enjoyed it um whereas i think something like endgame because I think what was cool about Endgame, and it's also something that was cool about Game of Thrones, but Game of Thrones was bad, uh, was that we were all watching it at the same time. And what fueled Endgame to that box office performance was the notion of this is the end, this is the conclusion. If you don't want to be spoiled, you've got to get your asses in seats that first weekend. And everyone did. Like that 
catapulted it to the highest opening weekend of all time. Um, and then on top of that, they made a good movie that was rewatchable. And so that's why people kept going back and back again. And that I think surged it to the top, but you know, it, it did limp across the finish line. It, it took a, you know, a re-release push to get it over that avatar gross. But I, I think in this day and age, when you have so many things vying for your attention, it's still really impressive that it, oh yeah, I don't mean to like minimize anything about Endgame. I think it is sort of a landmark, but at the same time, I just, I feel like it both overshadowed the summer and I think, but was also emblematic of a summer where like there, like when there's only one thing to talk about, it gets exhausted. Like I remember yeah. like two weeks after Endgame came out, I was like, I don't really, it's like, do we need to have this conversation? It's like, what was Jerry Renner wearing in this scene that you won't yeah. believe? Yeah. Like it just on and on, like, like just mining everything. It's like the writers say this about time travel, but the Russo brothers say this about time travel. And I don't care. Like to me, those are the less interesting questions about that movie. That's like mythology nitpicking that just doesn't seem to have any bearing on theme or character um, or really the storytelling it's just like what happens here like fill in my fan fiction and so by that point i was just exhausted with it and i'm kind of glad the conversation died down because now i feel i can like enjoy endgame again yeah i feel kind of i don't feel so saturated in it yeah i mean the the way that and and not everyone interacts with uh films the same way but the way i interact with films is is not in a uh you know let's debate all the plot points and i have a friend of mine who loves doing that and he loves like nitpicking and discussing like so what do you think this means what do you think that means and my answer is always that character doesn't exist this movie is fake like i I can't go down that route my brain doesn't work that way i don't i don't create stories beyond the story that's being told in the film or beyond the story that's being told in a book that i'm reading um my brain just doesn't work that way i understand a lot of people do um but I think Avengers Endgame, because it was so final, it didn't give you that much to keep going with. And, you know, obviously now we know that there are story threads that will be, will be continued in Disney Plus series. Um, but in particular, the arc of uh, Iron Man and Captain America, uh, I liked how those ended. I liked that it, it – and yet people still found found ways to, like, let's debate. And then the writers and the Russos were like, oh, let's be coy about it, which – tells me that the captain america thing is not over which is kind of annoying um but i guess so iron man the iron man arc that was nice like you can't say like oh what if well, maybe nope, yeah well the iron done. man arc and the thanos arc like that than like the infinity stones are done thanos sucks thanos here's the thing thanos sucks as a character and i like thanos because of how memeable he is <laughs> yeah, like if you if you follow the spencer perry on twitter he uses thanos like a like a freaking samurai wheel to blade <laughs> like just watch the way he uses a thanos meme is just perry <laughs> and scott wampler and scott wampler are using yeah. thanos to their to their utmost i would just say <laughs> thanos is more like there was that that mexican that restaurant for that mexican restaurant that used thanos <laughs> and that's way better than like thanos actually is as a character but like yeah that's (laughs) a good way to use him like i think it's sort of like thanos so like the way i think about it is is sort of like when darth vader came out like in 1977 people genuinely feared darth vader like he was a villain to be like threatening and then over the course of 40 years darth vader becomes like a meme and like something funny and kind of like you know he's a spatula now like he's just darth vader he's your buddy yeah. um and like to the point where like in rogue one it's like oh he's scary again well, that's weird <laughs> like it became like oh like <laughs> it's weird that this character it, who has always been a villain for the most part is like you know is 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 actually being villainous and i think with thanos we just skipped all of that we just skipped the 40 years and like yeah he's the villain but let's just have fun with him and i think yeah that's on we're, we're the better for it yeah. Yeah. No, I'd agree with that. Um, I mean, oddly enough, it took until Aladdin for something else to take over the conversation. And yet again, that was another Disney movie. Yeah. Like, it was May 24th that Aladdin came out, uh, almost a month to the day that Avengers Endgame came out. And for whatever reason, everyone wanted to see that movie. And it was not very good. Um, although I've, I've kind of changed my opinion on it in the wake of Lion King, which I'm sure we'll get to. Um, yeah. But yeah. Woof. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, made a lot of money. A lot of people wanted to go see Aladdin. I want to talk about. Let's talk about the Disney of it all. Like, yeah, let's yeah. talk about the Disney of it all because I think you know the line I keep flashing back to is that in Cloud Atlas, the book entertainment is just called Disney's. Um, 
the the implication being that Disney has just taken over all entertainment. Yeah. And in the wake of Disney buying Fox, and so we're down, you know, we, we've lost a major studio. And because Fox had some films that flopped that were going to flop, whether Disney bought them or not, um, Fox now gets to release fewer films. The films that they are going to have to make are like a fucking Home Alone reboot, which I, I don't fucking want. Um, and... I mean, they essentially did that with Home Alone three, but whatever. Well, whatever. But you, you get the idea. Like a, or a, night, a night at the museum. Home like basically, Twentieth Century Fox used to make interesting films. As recently yeah. as last year, yeah, you had films like Bad Times at the El Royale and Widows, um, Red Sparrow, even Red Sparrow, like interesting movies. And they're not going to get to make those movies because if you're Disney, Disney is like what Disney really excels at is not making interesting films. Even though I think like I really like Endgame. Uh, and I really like Toy Story 4. Um, what Disney excels at is minimizing risk and maximizing reward. And that's how you make yeah. five movies that gross over a billion dollars each, by minimizing risk and maximizing reward. So there's nothing that Disney is really taking a gamble on. Um, I don't think we should be that surprised. Like, yeah, it, it is surprising when something like Dumbo flops. Um but we shouldn't be surprised when something like Aladdin takes off because it has that built-in audience. It has Will Smith being the genie. Um, it's it's passable enough. It's family entertainment. The, again, it, it makes sense why Aladdin was a hit. It makes sense why The Lion King was a hit. But, you know, with Disney leading the charge and sort of like, they have so much power and they're using it to make really uninteresting movies. Like Disney could easily spend, without blinking... $10 million on a small, interesting film that they could then release through like Fox Searchlight Pictures now. And I don't know if they're going to do that. I don't know if they're yeah. going to do that when they're going to be like, have you guys thought about maybe, you know, a sequel to Beasts of the Southern Wild? I don't know. I don't know what they're <laughs> thinking. But basically a sequel to something Fox Searchlight made rather than just making something new. Uh, that's the thing. Disney doesn't like, isn't a champion of new things. They are a champion of things that will work and make a lot of money. It's a great time to be a Disney shareholder. It's a lousy time to be a film fan with Disney leading the charge. And again, I say there's someone who doesn't like hate Disney, but I think as someone who would like more interesting films and like to see studios use their success to take some chances rather than just play it safe all the time, it makes, it, it bums me out a little bit. Well, and they also make films with an eye towards more than box office. So if you look at The Lion King, if you look at Toy Story 4, if you look at Aladdin, uh, even the Marvel movies, everything is made with an eye towards how can we expand this experience and make the most of it. So parks is a huge part of it. Disney World, Disneyland. Uh, you've got uh, Toy Story. You've got Pixar Pier at both of the Disney parks. So Toy Story 4 is going to draw interest to those two lands. Um, you've got The Lion King and Aladdin. So The Lion King is part of Animal Kingdom and Disney World, but you also have the upcoming Disney Plus service. And you think, okay, we can draw interest to the original Lion King and the original Aladdin if we throw those on Disney Plus as well. You look at Avengers Endgame and Captain Marvel, not only do they have the kind of like Marvel expansions that they're building in, uh, I think, Epcot and then... Uh, somewhere in Disneyland, uh, I believe, um, you've got the Disney Plus series. So Avengers Endgame is essentially a prequel to the Loki series and the Hawkeye series um, and the uh, you know uh, Scarlet Witch and Vision series, WandaVision. So these are all, like, these are movies that are made not to be, it's very extremely rare that Disney will greenlight a movie released by Disney that is just meant to be a movie in theaters. That's it. They were greenlight a movie and they think of, okay, how can this draw ticket sales to the parks? How can this draw subscribers to Disney plus? How can this draw, um, people who are watching, you know, Disney channel on TV, you've got like animated star Wars series on uh, Disney XD and stuff like that. So like these are movies are bigger than the movie itself and no other studio is doing that. And I think that's, that's another thing to keep in mind is when these movies come out, it's not necessarily all about just getting butts and seats. Um, you know, there are a lot of other reasons that they make these movies. Yeah, absolutely. No, they have the, their eye on all these ancillary revenue streams and that's fine, but it also makes you kind of limited as a movie studio. And that's why I kind of worry about Fox and like dark Phoenix was going to flop, whether it was released by Fox or released by Disney owned Fox. Yeah. Um, 
and all I can say about Dark Phoenix is, boy, I'm glad the X-Men are dead right now. <laughs> like, yeah. But like what a, a franchise that needed to die. And boy, did Although, it. Can we, can we note how ridiculous it is that Disney, that Bob Iger blamed the like disappointment on Fox on like their movies. It's like we all like he, he blamed like Disney's poor earnings on like these Fox movies that flopped this year. Um and not on like you know when like lower than expected attendance at Galaxy's Edge and Disneyland, uh, or the fact that like you know D- Dark Phoenix was precisely like the the thing like one of the major things that provided death knell to Dark Phoenix was the Disney Fox deal because you told people that this movie doesn't matter because you're gonna reboot them anyway. Right. Well, and the other thing is is like it's just kind of like it's blaming someone that can't defend themselves. So, like who's gonna stand up for Fox? Yeah. Um, the other thing is is like. Don't treat us like idiots. You bought Fox because you need their content. Yeah. Like you're about to launch Disney Plus. You need an entire Fox library of movies that you can then reboot and but also just put on your streaming platform. And then, you know, you move on to it's really frustrating. Like you like you can blame things that are bad, but like Fox is not like, oh, if not for Fox, you bought no one put a gun to your head and told you to buy Fox. (laughs) Oh, you have to buy Fox. No, you yeah. don't. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> no one told you to do this. Yeah. Um, and so, like, yeah, I just feel like this summer season, like, thing, there were also just, like, a lot of forgettable movies. Like, did you know, and this is true, there was a new Child's Play movie. <laughs> yeah. No, I there did was, not. There was and a that, new that, Annabelle movie. The, yeah, the Annabelle movie was that was surprising because horror is doing really well right now, mm-hmm. but uh, that movie did not do well. Um, people just didn't show up to the movies. Like you and we've talked about this before. Like the the difference seems to be like give people a reason to show up to the movies, and I think a lot of these movies just didn't didn't do a good enough job um, of convincing people. Like yes, this is the thing that is worth your time and money and effort. Well, I also think that there needs to be like, I mean, they have CinemaCon every fucking year and like someone needs to like get in there and be like, hey, not theater owners, you're not doing your job. Like, yeah. we, like basically our success depends on each other. And as movie studios, our your success depends more on like, like technically the theaters need movie, you know, movie studios more than the other way around because movie studios will now have streaming. They'll have other ways to make money. Um, but theater, obviously theatrical distribution still matters. And meanwhile, like theaters are just like, well, what if we let people text on their phones during movies? Like, you know, what if we, what if we give them like new flavors of popcorn? Like they're not actually thinking like, okay, how can we mitigate ticket prices? Like even something like Regal, like Regal just came out with this new, uh, sort of unlimited ticket thing, but it's completely convoluted and it's not easy to understand. And so, like their solution is kind of half-assed and sloppy. And so the, there are these things that like theaters are doing that aren't really solving the problem of how do we get people back? Cause we're losing them. Like we are not like the, you know, and the thing is, is that movie studios have in the past figured out a way to, I don't want to say combat a new form of technology, but they figure out a way to co-opt it. It's just that the pipeline is changing now. So, you know, when television came along, what happened was studios were really afraid and they like, they went to widescreen and they tried all these new things and they're like, Oh wait, we can sell our old movies to television and they will sell. And that will, you know, we'll make money from them showing our old movies. And like, like a film, like it's a wonderful life became a hit because it was shown on television. And yeah. then when VHS came along, studios were like, Oh no, we're going to be pirated to death. And they're like, Oh wait, rental market is a huge avenue is a, is a, is a new revenue stream for us. So they went along with it and now streaming is here and studios are like streaming is where we can make a lot of money. The issue is, is you don't need theaters for that. Like you can have a bunch of people watch like a film, like to all the boys I've loved before probably wouldn't have done that well in theaters, but on Netflix, it's a film that apparently people are, will watch multiple times and really enjoy. So what do we need theaters for if all you're going to get are higher ticket prices, overpriced food, and shitty patrons who don't turn off their phones? I will say I'm a member of the Cinemark Rewards Program, and it's really good. Um, I, and I hear A-List is pretty good, too. I was just like, we have yeah. a bunch of Regal theaters here, and like Regal theaters already are kind of shitty. And I was just sure. like, boy, I hope that you know they roll out you know their kind of movie pass sort of 
featuring and it was shit. It was ba- yeah. it's based on like they're like some theaters will have movies and some won't. But if you pay more, you can go to more movie theaters. I'm like, what if a theater isn't near to me? It's like, I don't know. Like it's it's all based <laughs> on proximity to locations. Yeah. It's really difficult to understand and it's like it's like it's stupid. Yeah. No, Cinemark is it's eight ninety nine a month, or it's like nine dollars a month, and then each movie ticket is eight ninety nine, and you get one free ticket a month, and you have no online fees or anything like that. And I think you get your first two or three tickets are each nine dollars. Mm-hmm. So if me and my fiance go to the movies on Saturday night, instead of paying you know fifteen dollars per ticket, we're paying nine dollars per ticket, and yeah, you get that's a good 20%, deal. Twenty percent off concessions. It's easy so, to like, understand instead of like here yeah. are three tiers. And they're based on your location, and also we're not waiving, you know, online ticket fees. Like, yeah. What a garbage service. Well, and even this summer, I've been surprised by what people are going to and what people aren't going to. Like, John Wick 3 made $320 million. Like, that's yeah. a lot of money for an R-rated movie. And yet, The Secret Life of Pets 2, which is a sequel to, like, an incredibly successful animated movie, made far less than the original did. I think the the... The sequel made like 381 million, um, which is uh, kind of pales in comparison to what the I other mean, one. I mean, 378 million for an Illumination film is bad. Yeah, like I mean, if we're going to judge Illumination films by their own metric, yeah, um, Secret Life of Pets, the first one made 875 million worldwide. Right. It is the so it is their most right. successful film. The first yeah. one is, and the only film that Secret Life of Pets two is more successful than is Hop. Yeah. And then you look at something like Ma, which was a pretty modest uh, film. Uh, it only made sixty million dollars worldwide, but it was only they only paid five million to make right. it. So that, that, that Blumhouse model. Yeah, and then you look at Late Night, which seemingly you know everybody loves rom coms. It's a return of the rom com, and that movie. No one went to see it. No one went to see it, and I think I saw that movie. I liked that movie. The marketing was bad. I will yeah. say the marketing was not good for that movie. It was weak marketing. And I think, honestly, Amazon Studios is sort of, like, I don't want to say like, oh, they botched, uh, you know, because The Big Sick was a hit and that's a rom-com. Yeah. But yeah, they botched it with Late Night. I think they're going to, they're botching it right now with Britney Runs a Marathon. Yeah. Um, well, they've already admitted earlier this year that like now they're, they're changing their strategy. They're no longer as focused on theatrical. They're more focused on like, we just want to get this on our streaming service and, and have it there for people to watch, mm-hmm. which is a bummer. Because it was like I really enjoyed seeing the big sick in theaters with a lot of people. Like that was a nice communal experience. But um, you know, I don't know. The, you know, rom coms seem to be doing well on Netflix. Always be my baby. Technically, came out this summer, mm-hmm. uh, but it was on Netflix, and I enjoyed it. But uh, yeah, I guess one another thing that was really frustrating about this summer is there were like there were these smaller films like Late Night. And then like no one went to go see it. Like no matter how positively you talked them up, I guess the new mentality is, eh, I'll just wait. Like there's no urgency anymore. And I think like in the past, like if you wanted to see something like my big fat Greek wedding, like you had to like go to the theater so you could get on board, like understand what all your friends were talking about. Like, so even though it was an indie film, like you really had to sort of like go out and be part of the conversation. The thing is, there are so many conversations now, like there's no more urgency unless you have something like an end game. So I can like talk up something like book smart, which I thought was really great. But is there any urgency to see Booksmart like right now in theaters? And you're like, nah, I'll wait till it comes out at the end of the summer because the release windows are shorter now. So, well, there's also so many movies like I want to see Good Boys this weekend. I really want to see it. Um, And if you're listening to this, we recorded this podcast on uh, Friday. So you're listening to it the the week after. Yeah, We're both out of Um, town right now as you listen to this. This is why this is why we're banking this episode. (laughs) Um, But I really want to see Good Boys. My fiance and her mom really want to see Blinded by the Light, which I've already seen. Um, but since the three of us would like to go see Blinded by the Light, we're going to go see that this weekend. We don't have time to see two movies this weekend, so that means Good Boys gets pushed, and then there's already, you know, uh, other movies coming out next weekend, uh, that may have more urgency, um, I think, or maybe not. But, like, it becomes well, it's the end this, of August, uh, so it's a, it's a unique time. Well, Ready or Not is something I really want to see, and that That's movie, true. like, I really like seeing horror movies in theaters, and that movie feels like there's maybe a more sense of urgency, so I don't see Good Boys that weekend. And then, like, if Good Boys doesn't do really well, it's out of theaters within a month. And so then I've lost my chance. Um, and you're also budgeting. Like if I like, do, can I afford to see two movies in a weekend with a date? 
like that's four movie tickets in one weekend and it gets expensive when you consider concessions and everything like that so that's the other thing is you look at like historically you look at the 90s or the 80s and people were seeing movies but there weren't studios weren't making as many movies so it wasn't as if like you, i i feel kind of overwhelmed at times and i'm making well, there, a choice yeah, there to, wasn't as much product there wasn't and the product was not as expensive and the product was better like not yeah. not I'm not talking like in terms of the quality of the films. That's like oh, they only made good films in the '80s. The product is the the experience of going to the movie theater. Yeah, and the, that experience is not as good anymore. Uh, yes and no. I would say the presentation is better. The presentation uh, is better, but the audiences are worse. Like you can give me like a 4K, you know, whatever you know projection, but if you have some dickhead in front of me who won't get off his cell phone, yeah, you know, I've I've wasted some money there. Yeah, that's very frustrating. And it's hit or miss. It's a gamble every time you go out. Yeah. Uh, you know, am I going to have a bad audience or a good audience? So you never really know. Um, but yeah. they just did. What I'm saying is like the smaller movies that you set aside to see the other movie that you wanted to see, it just kind of starts to pile up. And then I think that's another factor in terms of like some people do want to wait, but then other people are like, well, I wanted to see it, but I just couldn't find the right time to see it. And now it's already out of theaters because there's just too many movies. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a bummer. It's it's a real bummer. And I and again, like I understand, like I'm talking from a privileged pers- perspective. Like I'm because like I'm I'm in Atlanta. I'm a film critic. We're gonna get the screenings, so I have an opportunity. Like I don't have to pay to see these movies. And like I don't want people to like. I don't think any of our listeners are like. I, I'm not. I don't want people to think like I'm saying you're bad because you're not going to the movie theater. I'm saying things. The deck is stacked against you, and it's frustrating because. I think there are a lot of people out there who do want to see a film like Booksmart or The Art of Self-Defense. Um, and instead, they're just, they're like, I got to, you know, it's it's more financially, it's better for my time and it's better for my wallet if I just wait till it's on streaming. And like, like The Art of Self-Defense is going to be like on Hulu. Like they think they just announced, like Bleecker just announced, like they're have a, they set up a streaming deal with Hulu. So that's going to be on Hulu and Booksmart is Annapurna. And I think Annapurna has a deal with, with Amazon um, or, or, or Hulu and either way, like, so that film is going to be like streaming. Um, So you can just wait it out pretty much. Yeah. Although there have been some nice successes this summer that were enjoyable theatrical experiences. I mean, I was heartened to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood did really well. Mm -hmm. Um, I was heartened. Like I enjoyed seeing that in a crowded theater that was a fun experience uh and i'm uh gonna make an effort to see it again before it goes out of theaters because you know if tarantino's gonna stop making movies this is a ri- and since you know repertory screenings don't happen as often anymore especially, especially with disney, disney Fox. <laughs> yeah so we've been seeing reports of like fight club uh was supposed to have a repertory screening somewhere and it got pulled because disney does not allow uh their movies to be screened in theaters after they've been released so they don't allow that and now that they own fox it seems like they're starting to uh enact that policy on fox as well i don't know the reasoning behind it i don't know if it's to drive their home video sales or drive people to their streaming services but i think it's stupid and it's really really detrimental to the theatrical uh movie going experience yep i agree it's really angry. And anyway. I think, I think, I think, you know, you, at, at that point you would wish like a director, like a, a Christopher Nolan or a Steven Spielberg would be like, Hey, Disney, you know, pull your head out of your ass. Yeah. Yeah. I think they just, well, they, Disney's just obsessed with control. They want to control everything. So they want to control when they can have their anniversary theatrical screenings of the Lion King, because that gives them the most bang for their buck. So again, it's a bottom line issue probably. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm sure I, it, it always is. Yeah. And I went to the 3d, theatrical re-release of the lion king like a schmuck um so like you know i'm i'm bad mouthing disney but i love disney world and i love a lot of disney products and disney shows and disney movies and stuff like that so here's the thing like we can't like disney is 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 at the top of the entertainment like it's it's one of the biggest entertainment companies of all time they're immensely powerful we're allowed to talk shit about disney that doesn't mean like we hate disney or like like i'm not going to see any more marvel movies or pixar movies or whatever but at the same time, like we can acknowledge that Disney is not a perfect entity. Disney is not daddy, you know, who's yeah. going to be like, oh, you can't criticize Disney. No, give me a fucking break. It's yeah. fucking Disney. They don't give a shit about you. Exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, is there anything else? Because just talking about the summer movie season bums me out. I kind of want to move on. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it. I mean, even considering the movies that I did really like this summer, um, like uh, Avengers: Endgame, like Midsommar, um, 
they were kind of few and far between for me. Even something like the farewell, I didn't love the farewell. I liked the farewell. Mm-hmm. Um, it it just overall has been. I mean, the, the off the top of my head, the one smaller film that has been surprisingly successful is Yesterday, and I didn't even like that movie. Right. So, but that movie's made 125 million dollars worldwide, which is a lot. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Find a find an interesting concept, and maybe you can get people to come back to theaters. But mm. you know, even but even that is like Beatles branding. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, I mean, I guess my larger point is that you know. Even the smaller movies weren't perfect this summer, and it, it just kind of seemed like a big uh, black hole that just kind of sucked everything in, and not very many things rose to the surface. For me, I had the issue of, like, there were smaller films. I felt I was screaming into a void. So, like, I'd be telling people, like, go see Booksmart, and no one went to go see Booksmart. Like, go see The Art of Self-Defense, and no one goes to The Art of Self-Defense. I get to fucking The Nightingale, and I'm like, go see, you know what, you're not going to go see The Nightingale. <laughs> no one's going to go see The, no one's going to get past the first 20 minutes of The Nightingale. Yeah. Um, so it's just it felt like a an exercise in futility. Sure. It's a bummer. Yeah. All right, let's move on to reader hot takes then. Let's do it. All right. Let's we're gonna read off four of these. Let's we'll dive, dive into four of these. All right. Uh Solstice Listener said, uh, reader hot take. In today's political and social climate, David Fincher's The Social Network reads as a masterpiece on the level of Citizen Kane. Hot damn. Um, okay. So I would just counter that simply by saying like on the one hand, yes, I, I think, I think the social network is one of the most vital films of the 21st century. I think it is a sort of a way to re it's almost like a Rosetta stone on the way we interact with each other now, especially in the age of the internet. I think it, it really understands that even though it's not, even though it, you don't need to be like a tech tech expert to understand it or anything like that. The way it, 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 delves into the coldness and fragility of human relationships is really phenomenal. I would just not put it at the level of Citizen Kane because Citizen Kane literally changed the way we make movies. <laughs> like yeah. Citizen Kane like pioneered like deep focus. Like it actually there are new camera techniques in Citizen Kane that had not been done before. So that would just I would say like cinema like Citizen Kane is like a cinematic revolution. Um whereas uh, the social network is just an excellent film that everyone has to see. Yeah, I agree. It's, that it's splitting a hairs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's one of my favorite films of all time. Aaron Sorkin's one of my favorite writers. David Fincher's one of my favorite directors. Uh, and I would add that I think that it was incredibly prescient uh, and important in speaking to the fact that in the 21st century, the people that run the world are 20-somethings who uh, create things in their bedrooms and no longer MBAs or, you know, legacy businessmen. Um, not to say that it doesn't still happen, but uh, we've seen more and more, um, you know, these essentially kids that become CEOs. And things sometimes don't go great. Have you seen Jack Dorsey? Have you seen Twitter? Have you seen Elon um, Musk? Yeah. Uh, and so, but I, I think it was incredibly refreshing in, in, uh, analyzing the fact that like, you know, these people became incredibly powerful and yet they still had not figured out social interactions because they were still kids. Like they were still trying to figure out the world and they still suffered, you know, jealousies and, um, uh, you know, harbored, uh, feelings of resentment towards their friends and, and just wanted friends. Uh, so, um, I, and I don't see the social network as a, uh, complete and utter factual nonfiction document. I think it's more of uh, uh, like a painting uh, of Zuckerberg. And um, I think the the better way to read it is, is just how it speaks uh, more largely to the world that we live in. But but the way that it's put together, I think, is masterful and, and fantastic. But, uh, but yeah, I don't think I'd put it on Citizen Kane's level just because it didn't really change uh, how movies are made, although it has been copied a lot. So. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, JC Topete, uh, has a hot take. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is an extremely underrated film. I can acknowledge its flaws, such as the overuse of CGI, some questionable lighting slash cinematography choices, and Shia LaBeouf swinging through a jungle with monkeys, but it was also my first introduction to Indiana Jones and a doorway into those first three classics. I was incredibly impressed with its adventurous spirit, the relationships between all the characters, the fast-paced editing, a compelling science fiction MacGuffin, its overall sense of fun, and not really taking itself too seriously, just like all the films in the series. Curious to hear your thoughts. Um, well, thank you for leaving the hot take. Um, I can't, you know, it's interesting. You know, I never really considered it that way. Like, what if Crystal Skull was the first Indiana Jones film you ever saw? Like, I can't, I can't wrap my yeah. head around that because 
I was in my mid twenties by the time, um, by the time Crystal Skull came out. Yeah, and so like I and I had, I had seen the first three multiple times, and like they had cemented themselves. Like this is Indiana Jones. This is what it's supposed to be. And Crystal Skull is not that. And yet at the same time, I don't think it's like. I guess the question is: Is do we dislike Crystal Skull? Because it's not like the first three Indiana Jones films or because it feels like a pale imitation of those films? I don't know. I think uh, – well, and my feelings on, on Crystal Skull are wrapped up in uh, – because I was obsessed with Steven Spielberg and I, I read everything I could about that movie leading up to it. And uh, I actually wrote a piece on Collider if you want to look at it of uh, the various different uh, drafts and screenplays and iterations of the movie that never got made. Um, but – uh, I know that Spielberg very purposely, purposefully tried to make his filmmaking techniques revert back to how he made movies in the 80s. Um, and that's why he and Janusz Kaminski, his cinematographer, tried to revert their cinema, cinema, cinematographic techniques to uh, how those movies were lensed previously. And I think that was a grave mistake. Um, I think it comes off looking and feeling amateurish. Uh, that's part of... Part of, and that's honestly part of the big reason why I don't like it. I just think it's ugly. I think it doesn't feel right. It feels really cheap and dumb and stupid. That being said, I agree. I think it's really interesting that um, you know this was this reader's introduction to Indiana Jones, and I think that's something that we don't think about a lot. Is you know when we're lambasting these sequels or these reboots, and you know saying how much we hate these things, we're not considering that these may be a gateway towards those other films that we already love for um, people who are not familiar, um, whether they're younger or they just miss them. Um, I think that's an interesting way to consider things. Uh, and uh, I will say, my fiance is a, a, a stark defender of Crystal Skull, uh, and I tell her she's wrong every time. <laughs> but um, your opinion is not uh, unheard of. Uh, I will say, you know, and and again, and it's tough. I think, you know, you make a good point about like, you know, people come to these things at different ages. I had uh, my wife and I, we had some friends over for dinner and they brought their kids and their kids, uh, they had seen Aladdin. They're like, what'd you think of Aladdin? And I'm not going to tell some eight year old, like, I thought Aladdin was fucking garbage. (laughs) You need to see the original. The new one is garbage. (laughs) I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that. I am going to say, I do think there was a little too much conversation over the loyalties of Hakeem, the head guard. (laughs) That's funny. Uh, yeah, I have also heard from friends whose young kids really like the new Aladdin. And, you know, not to get back on Disney, but I think that's the point yeah. for Disney. Is uh, And I think that speaks to um, how well the heart of those original films were crafted and how strong that, uh, you know, foundation is of those original films. It's disheartening that that work is just kind of being uh, traced upon for these new versions, and yeah. these new ones. Um but, uh, you know, I'm not going to take away the joy that that gives someone else. Uh, yeah. And Crystal Skull, like, that was Spielberg just doing it because he wanted to. So that's all on him. And I really like the first 10 minutes of that movie. I don't like anything else about it. But, uh, yeah, uh, to each his own. Uh, you know, and, you know if, it, if that movie brings you joy, good on you. Uh, moving on. Uh, J-Dog, 539. Uh, my hot take is that Mother is good, actually. Oh, I think no. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Let's let's hear J Dog out. I think despite the sometimes obvious allegory, the filmmaking on display, Libatique, Aronofsky, and Lawrence's in particular, elevate it into an excellent made fable. Uh, a fairy tale passed on from generation to generation, which a wi- with a wide range of interpretable meaning. You may already know where it's going and what it's trying to say, but I think the way in which mother does it is fascinating and worthy of anyone's time. Um so here, um, I like Aronofsky. I like him. Like the, the fountain is one of my all time favorite movies. Um, a film like pie has really grown on me. Um, I think the best, one of the best anti-drug films ever made is Requiem for a dream. Um, I, I think the wrestler is powerful. I, I, I went in really wanting to like mother, but for me, I don't think it does have a wide range of interpretable meanings. I think it you can you can offer that, but I think it has a very particular meaning it has because that's allegory. It's a one-to-one uh, storytelling device. And once you lock in on that, it just kind of reads as sort of like just a very angry environmentalist screed. And again, the thing is, is I agree with him. Like it's like I, I am on Aronofsky's page in terms of like, whoa, we are destroying the planet. <laughs> this is not good. Um, 
but it's a lot of movie to take in to like, I think the film, it wants to horrify its audience, but because it's wrapping itself in sort of this dream logic and allegory, it creates a kind of, uh, instead of sucking the audience in, it creates a barrier. So once either you get it or you don't, but it's not a film that you, that stays with you because you can't do much with it. It's like, Oh, I get it. And then you like, you just kind of have to leave it there. Even though I, I think the craft is unique and I think it's a film that sends you for a loop. Um, once you've got it, you've got it. And it doesn't really offer anything other than someone yelling at you for destroying the planet for, for 90 minutes. Yeah, that was my experience with it as well. I do agree that the craft uh, is impressive, and I agree that the message is worth sending. But as someone who grew up in a religious household, after I got it like 15 minutes in, and I was sitting next to you and you got it around the same time, I was just bored silly the rest of the movie <laughs> because it is just a straight-up allegory. And like, there's just – there was nothing else for me to latch on to. And I think for some people who have – different interpretations of it it's it's more interesting but i can't not read it as just a direct translation of the bible uh into these uh little vignettes or scenes and so like it for me it's a stretch to read it as like you know um you know a muse or something on like our artists artists and the struggle to create um so i just it's hard for me to see the film that way and so the way the film i see it i just find it really boring yeah. Yeah. It's the only Aronofsky that I'm like, I have no interest in ever revisiting this. Yeah. Like even a film like Noah, which I think covers the same thematic ground. I'm like, I kind of want to rewatch Noah one day. I don't have that feeling about mother. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Too cool. 2012, uh, has a hot take. Uh, I think it's pretty unfair to compare the DC Cinematic Universe to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The MCU began back in 2008. The DC Universe began in 2013. The MCU currently has 24 films. Uh, I think it's 23, but it doesn't matter. Uh, DC only has seven films. It's like comparing a kid graduating from middle school to an adult graduating with a master's degree. Marvel is dominating the superhero genre right now. DC is still figuring things out and learning. Many critics and movie fans hated DC in the beginning because of its dark, serious tone. But then once DC lightened up a bit with Aquaman and Shazam, people are now saying that DC is trying to copy Marvel's tone. It seems as if some don't want DC to succeed in general, and I hate that. Instead of constantly comparing the two, we need to just allow both universes to coexist and let them do both do their own thing. Marvel has their connected universe, and DC has their huge universe with separate stories throughout. So I think this is a good, this is a fair point that like you shouldn't really compare the MCU and and DC movies, except the reason DC movies took a certain direction was because of Marvel movies. Like the, the, the top brass at Warner Brothers is like, we need to do that. Like that, they, they could have taken their time and told their own stories, but they consciously said, we need to get to our own Avengers. That's what we have to do. We have this huge stable of characters. Why are things not moving along faster? Um, it should also be said that DC like, and Warner Brothers could have, been in, could have been leading the way instead of behind Marvel because DC had all the characters. There was going to be a Justice League movie with like, wait, like back in, gosh, what was the year you wrote about this, Adam? What year? Yeah, it was the mid 2000s. So it was yeah. Adam Brody and uh, Army Hammer and Hammer. Uh, Diego Bonetta, I think. Oh, no, not Diego Bonetta. JC uh, Um no. Yeah, gosh, I can't remember that guy's name because he was in a few things and then kind of disappeared for a while. Yeah. In any event, DJ they... Katrona, that's what Katrona, it was. yeah. He was in the G.I. Joe movie. Yeah, they um, could have led the way is what I'm saying. They could have yeah. been leaders and instead they were just like, we're only going to do our Batman movies and then we can't seem to figure out how to do Superman for some reason. Um, so we have like Superman returns, which people didn't go for, even though I think Superman returns is, is pretty good. Um, and then, so they, they, and then they kind of entrusted everything to Zack Snyder and that was a mistake. So like, it's not, I don't think it's so much that like, Oh, why isn't DC like Marvel? I think the issue is DC, like Warner brothers made some choices with DC and I don't think those choices panned out not because they weren't Marvel enough, but because, they didn't understand what people wanted from these characters or from these stories, and then they rushed everything, um, and then they overreacted to, to to the reaction. Like it was it was way too reactive. So when Batman v Superman flopped, they were like, "Okay, we have to re-figure out Justice League now and all of our movies." Like Warner Brothers was constantly just chasing its tail on these things, and so I think you know there's a different timeline out there where Man of Steel performs as it does. 
and they're like, okay, that didn't, that did okay. Not as well as we would have liked, but it did okay. What if we do one, another Superman movie where we try to tweak the things that didn't work, but it's still just focused on Superman. And then our next movie will bring in Batman. And so, but they didn't do that. They're like, no, no, we have to catch up to Marvel. So it's not like this, this comparison to Marvel came out of nowhere. The reason we have Batman V Superman is because Marvel exists, not because, and because Superman, Man of Steel, uh, did not perform, you know, it didn't cross a billion dollars worldwide. And so therefore it needed Batman, you know, add some Batman. And it's just, I don't know. It, 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 I get why it's an unfair comparison and that like Marvel has an edge, but DC Warner brothers themselves invited that comparison. Yeah. Although I, I would agree. It's not a one-to-one because the, no. the DC EU or whatever it is, is an incomplete kind of a mess so it's like comparing i think you compare it to like maybe phase one of marvel leading up to avengers Mm. um and you can say okay like you know thor isn't the greatest movie made uh in the world and some people weren't super crazy about captain america the first avengers or the first avenger and neither of those (laughs) yes uh neither of those two movies touched anywhere near the box office grosses of Iron Man and Iron Man 2, and Iron Man 2 was kind of critically reviled. And yet, Marvel kind of stayed steadfast. They decided they would make their tweaks in the Avengers. Like, they would bring these characters back, bring Joss Whedon in. Joss Whedon worked a little bit on Captain America, the first Avenger, to uh, kind of tailor that script towards Captain America he wanted to create in the Avengers, and kind of worked that way. Whereas, uh, and, and the big big difference here is that Marvel Studios entrusted Kevin Feige with creating and spearheading these and Warner Brothers entrusted a director, Zack Snyder. Um, and I think that was a mistake because a director can't like, but a director is not a producer. The director can't be on set for all of these other movies that they're making. And, uh, you know, a director is not going to have the same kind of overall vision as a producer is going to have uh, when it comes to these. And and I understand that Zack Snyder helped create the story for Wonder Woman and produced Wonder Woman, and Wonder Woman is great. It's the best DC movie they ever made. Um, but uh, I think, you know, it's it's the, those are the mistakes that they made. And then, like you said, looking at like how those movies were made, it's just not – it's not the same kind of thing because they, you know, decided – while they were in production on Justice League, a month after, or three weeks after Batman v Superman opened, Superman opened in theaters, they were like, "We got to change a lot of things," and they had already like started the train. So they decided to speed ramp things up. So it's kind of on them. But uh, yeah, I don't think that you can say here is what the DC universe looks like and here is what the Marvel universe looks like because it's not complete. It's no, not. I agree, and I think you know DC. I think is trying to move in the right direction, and I think at least it's moving in a direction that I think is, is more, I think they're rebounding a bit. I think yeah. that they are, I think I thought Shazam was, was a good, like a good step. Um, I'm interested in birds of prey. I'm super excited for wonder woman, 1984. Um, obviously Matt Reeves is Batman is like that casting of Robert Pattinson, I think is really smart. Um, and I think Reeves is a great director. Um, what else is there? There's one other, something, something I'm forgetting. Uh, I guess Joker is the one that doesn't really count though, because it's not going to affect anything. Yeah. But, although Joker is what I think they should have been doing this whole time. Just, yeah. Making they, their, just these individual films. Well, and they looked at Marvel and like Marvel under Disney, uh, you know, by edict can't create R rated movies and can't allow filmmakers to be extremely free in their visions. They all have to create, like they have to fit in the Marvel cinematic universe. So I think what Warner brothers should have been doing is saying like, Oh, what can we do? Well, we can make R rated movies and we can bring in interesting directors to put their own unique. And that's that's basically what Fox did when they did with like Deadpool and Logan. Exactly. Yeah. And that worked extremely well. So, um, and finally, uh, Oh, Elkotan has three takes that he's shooting our way. So we're going to engage with these really quick. Uh, hot take. Florence Pugh gives an Oscar-worthy performance in Fighting With My Family. That movie is a delight. And Jack London is also really good as her brother. I would say she's good in it. I think she's way better in Midsommar. And I say that as someone who does not like Midsommar. I have not seen Fighting With My Family, so I have no opinion. Okay. But you did you like her in Midsommar? I did. I thought she was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Second talk take. David McKenzie followed up one of the best films of 2016, Hell or High Water, with one of the most lackluster and vertigo-inducing films of 2018, Outlaw King. Pudding Bowl Guy was the best thing about that movie, and that's because Aaron Taylor Johnson went for it. Douglas! <laughs> I'm sorry, he doesn't say Douglas. But Aaron Taylor Johnson is the entire reason to see Outlaw he King. He makes some I choices. Say I say that understanding that Outlaw King is also the movie where you see Chris Pine naked. Yeah. Um, and I, and I stand by it. Aaron Taylor Johnson is the reason to see that movie. Yeah. But that's about it. So. But just to finish this, uh, Outlaw King, that movie is so unfocused and ugly. I was so disappointed by it. I was, uh, hopefully his next film is better. I hope his next film is better too. Yeah. Um, his last take, what do you guys think of Nick Frost's transformation into grizzled character actor? See, Into the Badlands and Fighting With My Family. I think it's mostly good, if not a bit weird. Um, I, I, you know, I like Nick Frost. I think he's an interesting actor. And I think... Um, you know, I've never seen Into the Badlands, but I liked him in Fighting with My Family. Uh, I think he, you know, I hope he keeps making interesting choices. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Although I, I, I want to see another movie with him and Simon and Edgar soon. So, I yeah, I don't know when that'll come along, to be honest. Um, but yeah, we'll see. Sometime. Sometime. All right. Uh, well, thank you all for sending in your hot takes. If Again, if you like this, this podcast, please go on iTunes, uh, give us a review, and then in your review hottest movie related take we will talk about it promise um okay uh let's move on to recently watch what have you seen lately so uh there is a lot of peak tv on and there are a lot of things to watch but uh as you can tell by my uh, voice here i've been sick the past few days and so uh i decided to catch up on season three of glow uh on netflix which is a show that i like and it's just great like i think it's the most joyous show that netflix has created uh, produced, put out there. Uh, you know, it's 10 episodes each season. They're all just really delightful and put you in a good mood, but they're also deep and kind of really dig into the characters. Uh, what I really like this season is that it, it really focused on getting into the interior lives of the characters as the, uh, gorgeous ladies of wrestling, uh, moved to Vegas to put on a show, uh, every night in Vegas, um, which marked a really interesting and unique, uh, change of setting. The performances all around are just incredible. Betty Gilpin, Allison Brie, um, Chad Lowell this season, I think, is uh, delivers a really great performance. Um, Gina Davis is in the season. And I don't know. I just really love this show. I love it. It feels unique and fresh because it is from female creators and has a huge number of females behind the scenes creating it. And giving input into these characters in front of the screen. So uh, it's just like just that mere fact makes it feel different than a lot of other things that you're seeing uh, and gives these characters uh, dimensionality that I think you don't see in a lot of other female characters around. Um, but as I said, it's just like a delight to watch. Uh, it ends on a really uh, kind of heart wrenching cliffhanger this season. So I'm going to be really mad if Netflix does that thing where they're canceling shows after three seasons and cancels glow. So if you're a fan of glow, you should watch season three uh, soon because Netflix tracks that data. Um, and I just wholeheartedly recommend it. Uh, it's just such a good, fun, delightful show. Yes, yeah, definitely. That's uh, on my to-watch list. So uh, my recently watched, my wife and I made a, a questionable decision and decided to watch all three hours of Meet Joe Black, the 1998 Brad Pitt <laughs> movie. That's a remake of Death Takes a Holiday. The plot of the film is Brad Pitt plays Death, who comes to Anthony Hopkins, who is a successful communications magnet, who uh, for, on his 65th birthday is coming up. And he's like, I'm going to give you a little more time, but you have to show me around and show me, show, you know, you're, you, I need you to impart me some wisdom. And then Death falls in love with uh, Anthony Hopkins' daughter, played by Claire Forlani. Um, and it, it is an awful film. Just, just really like it's, it's such a seed of a good idea. Like what if death could learn humanity? Like what, what would that be? And it is a film that has no humanity to it. It's really quite awful. Like Brad Pitt makes some choices. Like his, his approach to death is to play death is kind of virginal and, um, wide eyed and kind of, but the way he plays it, it's, it's, it's kind of meant to be like innocent, but instead, it comes off as like someone on the spectrum who is also just stoned off their ass. Um, it's really a, a questionable performance. Uh, Claire Furlani uh, 
is there's no chemistry between them. Uh, it's a $90 million movie. You would think they would pay for a screen test, um, but no. Uh, or if they did, I don't know what happened, but they have no chemistry together. And the film hinges on their love story or it hinges on Anthony E. Hopkins imparting valuable life wisdom, which he also doesn't do. But there's plenty, there's like an hour of this movie is just like, what will happen to Anthony Hopkins business? Will this like weaselly guy on his board, like break it up or will they be able to save it? Like, and so there's a TV cut of Meet Joe Black that's only two hours. And apparently they just cut all that business stuff. And Martin Brest, the director was like, no, don't put my name on a film that cuts out the meaningless business (laughs) stuff. That's an Alan Smithy joint. Don't you uh, dare take away these valuable scenes about them talking about a business that doesn't exist. Oh my God. It's, it is a horrible film that like it, it rarely takes any big swings at being horrible. Although Brad Pitt doing a Jamaican accent for no fucking reason is up there. Um, <laughs> that's in there. Uh, but mostly it's a film that like, it's just a lot of bad small decisions that just keep compounding each other. And so, and the film moves at like half speed. Like half freaking, like this film is three hours because it doesn't have an editor apparently or no one that said, hey, we don't need this scene or hey, this could be tightened up. Every scene is a billion hours long. The film doesn't end. <laughs> it's on Netflix. Watch Beat Joe Black. <laughs> that movie is peak, like Scent of a Woman came out and won Al Pacino on Oscar and then Martin Bress got to do whatever he wanted. And he was like, this is what I want to do. And then after Meet Joe Black didn't work, he was like, all right, I'm going to do a movie called Gili. Yeah, that, that, that's how, how to kill, kill your career in two steps. Yeah, he literally hasn't directed anything since, uh, as far as I know. Nope. Um, I've never seen Meet Joe Black. I have seen the YouTube clip of the car accident. <laughs> Found it very funny. It's really funny. <laughs> um, so I remember seeing that and then like Wikipedia, like, what is the story of Meet Joe so Black? So if I can spoil something for those people who are like, you know, who have no interest in seeing Mijo Black or don't care. The, that that scene comes at the beginning of the film. And so what happens is, is that Claire Forlani has just met um, this normal dude whose name we don't get, um, played by Brad Pitt. He's just a normal dude and he's very charming and whatever. And then like, you know, there's that clip and like they're looking. It's like, is the other person going to look back at me? Is the other person going to look back at me? And then she <laughs> turns the corner and he then he gets, and so she doesn't see him get hit by two cars. <laughs> And it turns out that death is like, I needed a body. So I took this one on the one hand. That makes sense. If like, you're going to take a body, take Brad Pitt. I mean, why would you, you know, why would you look like anyone else given the choice? Um, but it's so weird because then you have, the film is saddled with like, so he meets her again later, but now he's death. And she's like, Oh, it's so nice to see you. And he's like, yes, it is nice to be meeting people. Like, like he has that, like he has that, that wide eyed, innocent, like he doesn't, He's not the same person anymore, but Claire Forlani doesn't know that because Anthony Hopkins can't tell anyone that that death is death. So you basically have to redo their entire relationship. It makes no fucking sense. I hate this movie. <laughs> I hate when, it. Uh, when Ad Astra comes out, we're going to do a big Brad Pitt podcast because his uh, his career is fascinating. It is yeah. fascinating. And I will I will lay out this hot take right now. Brad Pitt is a more successful producer than he is an actor. Ooh, searing hot take. Searing hot take. Uh, And I say that as someone who likes him as an actor, but I think he is producing careers underrated. All right. All right. Thank you all for listening. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.